This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Alexander Schmidt. He is the president of the Americas for Vacheron Constantin. Alexander, welcome. Hi, Ariel. Great pleasure. We were reminiscing recently about the first time we met, which was, I don't actually remember what year, but you were working at Mont Blanc. And I remember that we were on an interesting adventure together because we went to see a couple of the factories uh, that made Mont Blanc watches. There was the one in Le Lac, and then we went to Villaray, where we saw Minerva. And this was early on in my career, and this was a very heavy watchmaking thing. It was very engineering-based. It was, it was probably in 2008, and um, <laughs> yeah. very, very, like, some, some time is back. I remember very well the train ride from Zurich to, uh, to the Jura. Yeah, yeah, and, we, and it was like a crash course in this sort of technicity as well as understanding the different types of techniques that lead to a, a $6,000 in-house movement versus a you know, $40,000 one. Um, talk a little bit about your career. What have you been doing since then? What was your title at Mont Blanc back then? And, and how did you get to your, your current position here at Vacheron? Well, I'd rather even go a step further because um, you know, for watches, you say you either you have the watch virus or you don't have it. Right. right. If you if you if you if it's your passion, uh, then working in the industry is basically your your passion becomes your job or your job becomes your passion. That's a perfect match. If you don't have a passion for that, then people might have uh, might look at us a bit strange by seeing us discussing about all those details and get, getting passionate about that. And me, I was actually for my family born into the industry. Um, my family, we were my my family were distributors of watches in Austria. I'm originally from Austria. Um, for, for, for many years, we were representatives of many of the big brands. So I grew up, I think I was five years old when my father took me first to Basel because probably they didn't have a babysitter. Um, so I had, I, I caught that virus. Uh, I worked in the family company when I was like 18. Um, eventually that, um, that business as all the brands in, in, um, transparent markets like Europe uh, founded their own subsidiaries, you know, got closed because there was no value add for a distributor anymore. And I moved on. So after Mont Blanc, I, in Mont Blanc, I was responsible in the end. You, you met me when I was, uh, when we just took over the Minerva factory, which was an exciting project. Um, this amazing integration of this 150 year old traditional manufacturer into a, a brand powerhouse like Mont Blanc. Uh, and then I was responsible for the watches product development for Mont Blanc for, um, for almost, um, almost seven years. And then moved over to Vacheron Constantin. First in the Middle East, um, being responsible for um, a region that covered from, from Lebanon to India down to South Africa. Huge territory, I always said it's a, it's a, it's a big country of a big region of I think uh, 60, 60 or more countries, but actually only 12 you can travel to. Um, so, so that was really interesting. And when you say when you love watches and coming back to the passion, um, then probably Vachon Constantin is, um, is one of the most beautiful brands that you can work for. Thank you for that little history. I'm actually curious, going back to uh, your, your family and your roots, what did your family do in the industry and was it a natural thing for you to go into watches or did you maybe say, I will do something else, but then you, like you said, you had passion and you fell back into watches? No, it actually, it, it, it became natural as, you know, it was part of the, it was part of the family. In my family, we were, we were distributors, representatives of 
many watch brands uh, in, in, in Austria and then in, in Eastern Europe. Funnily enough, my grandfather, so my grandfather founded that company after the, after the war and my father took it over. Um, and funnily enough, uh, we were for, I think, 20 years representative of Minerva. Oh, wow. Um, and when I first came to Villarreal, I still found up in the, on, on the roof invoices to my grandfather. And I was joking to the guys and said, I hope he paid. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so I grew up into it. And my first job was while I was studying to actually work in the company. And, uh, and at that time, you know, introducing Swatch into Eastern Europe, which uh, into Hungary, which at that time was uh, like uh, after a long time ago, you know, right. uh, after the fall of the Iron Curtain, it was like the coolest brand anyway. So completely new world. So it came natural, but then I wanted to do other things. So I, I worked for, for, um, uh, for almost 10 years outside of the family business because the family business eventually also closed. I worked in, in management consulting in a very classical way, learned a lot, but always wanted to come back actually to, uh, to luxury. And in the end, came back to Mont Blanc and ended up in watches. So it's, for me, it was like a... A perfect circle, um, and I really specifically tried to come back and find the right space to come back to, to luxury watches. Would you agree that the historic watch industry compared to the one of today is is, is quite different? Yes, but yes, it has it has evolved over its um, over its centuries. Yes. So you are in an interesting perspective because many of the people working in the watch industry today don't have that familial heritage in there. What are some of the things in your family that you remember talking about where you were contrasting the way things used to be with the way things today, maybe laughing about how one is, you know, different than the other, but you, you've, you've been able to compare, you know, histories and the eras of, of this industry, you know, you got to have some stories about that. Yeah, a lot. So I think you can say, yes, the industry changed a lot, but you also have a lot of consistency in the industry because even today I still see people I still see people or or you know descendants of people who have probably worked with my father 30 or 40 years ago so they you always have new people coming in mm. um, but you also have a certain consistency be it's it very uh, sticky the industry it, it is because I think it's really like either you got you got the virus you you understand it uh, and that's as well in the markets as well as in actually in product development because I think in in what product development you know, and that, that's, that's always the beauty about, uh, we, we speak about Vasha and Constantin, then I come back to what has changed. But, the, but the, you know, we always speak about why is it so, Vacheron being, uh, being the oldest, uh, the oldest uh, watch manufacturer, but I always say important part of that is with an uninterrupted history. Right. Because in developing watches, you know, heritage is important because it also gives you that understanding, this feeling, you know, what makes the industry tick. And that's something very difficult to acquire when you come from the outside. That's why in product development, you know, you really have this generational, you know, handover um, and people staying in the industry because it's simply very difficult, you know, to find people who have that competence and who can pass it on. So these are the parts that, uh, that actually remain consistent. Then, on the other hand, the industry has, a, has a radically changed in, uh, in, in many ways. You know, in the beginning, it was, you know, the, the role of watch companies was uh, to produce beautiful watches. In the beginning, it was actually to produce functional watches, which, uh, which told the time. So it was purely functional and, and at that time a luxury by the fact that industrialization was only in the beginning. Then it became more and more industrialized in the 50s and 60s until the 70s. And when that functionality culminated with the quartz crisis for the Swiss watch industry, it shifted to actually you know, create, move beyond functionality. And today, we always say this, this famous saying, you know, today, nobody needs a, a, a fine mechanical watch. 
but the people love it because uh, because it gives something in addition to functionality. So that has so 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 that has significantly changed. But then also the scope of watch companies today has changed um, from purely producing watches to actually also moving ahead how to let's say how to build relationships with clients. And I think today that, that's maybe something that. Uh, over especially over the last that has been cooking since the since the, the last decade or the or the last fifteen years, but specifically accelerated um, in the last two years uh, with COVID. So okay, so you're talking about the fact that historically brands would be factories that made watches, and that somebody else would sell them to consumers. Today, brands are both having to make and create watches, but also in a lot of instances work as a sales company and marketing company and work with the market and, and sell the consumers. And that's that's quite different than the past. I would say not. it's not necessarily only selling because we're still working with partners in of the course, case of Vashon Constantine. But it, I think what's important is, you know, building relationships with clients and with, and with your end customers. And that's something that today for, for a brand like Vashon Constantine is, I would say, almost equally important than creating beautiful watches. Because today, when people come to a to a Vashon Constantin, I, I don't like to call them point of sales because today our, our stores are not predominantly to actually sell watches, but really to make people understand and uh, and um, you know understand what Vashon Constantin is about. You know, and I think people come also because of that today. Well, the reality is that if you're looking for a nice watch, there's a lot of options out there, and so you need an extra something special to attract customer's attention. And that is where the brand building and the relationship comes in. That's, you know, they want a nice watch. Why are they choosing your nice watch? And you're giving them reasons through those relationships. I mean, I wrote an article quite a while ago, and it was discussing some of the unknown perks of buying a watch directly from the authorized dealer. Because at the time, people were like, why would you go to the you know brand boutique? It's the most expensive. It's the least friendly. And I was like, okay, I hear you, but there's all these hidden perks. Once you get on their list, they start to invite you to events. There's special gifts, swag, if you will. Uh, you're informed about certain watches. You're put on higher priority for hard-to-get watches. There's a lot of benefits that comes out of having a relationship with a luxury watch brand outside of just buying the watches, right? True, but um, in, in this case, I would say the way how, how we look at it, we want to offer a client. So it really, in the end, it's up to the client with where he wants to be in contact with Vashon Constantin. So yes, we have our own our own managed stores, but we also have stores managed by our partners. Very very few. So we have also you know uh, adapted our distribution strategy. That was probably also something that has significantly changed in the last decades from the traditional watch beer business like it was in the 80s or 90s, which was predominantly multi brand driven, classical you know jewelry multi brand retailer. To something today, where at least for Vachon Constantin, you know, the, the, we believe that the best experience a customer can have is in a mono brand environment, right? where you can really experience the brand in its various facets, uh, and 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 those boutiques are either run by ourselves or can be run by a partner. We do not differ in terms of product availability, in terms of priorities, in terms of uh, of uh, experiences that the client should have. So for a client, there shouldn't be a difference whether he walks into a boutique managed by a partner or by a boutique managed by Vachon Constantin, except for maybe sizes, which is which is independent of the partner, but more due to the location and, um, and, and space. But the brand also has another level of relationship that customers can have with you, and that is through your really robust, uh, we'll just call it a customization program, where you will actually go out and make entire new movements. I mean, it's expensive, 
but you are among the few brands today that will take very in-depth custom orders. And that has allowed the company to do wild things. Um, talk about your experience with, the, with, with that and, and, and you know, what is available to customers. So you speak about Les Cabinotiers. At the top end. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and I think that's, that's again, so Bajau Constantin, we have a couple of, I think, elements that are really unique. Um, we, can, we can mention the other ones in, 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 in the next step, which is the collectionneur I would like to talk about. But Le Cabinotier is really something, a unique offer. It's a, if you want to make it simple, it's a, you know, the, the, the personalization department in Bachelon Constantin, but it's actually much more than that. It's really a department within the, the company with its own watch designers, with its own project managers, with its own watchmakers who can really realize, you know, the, the, you know, the demand of, uh, of the most, uh, the most craziest demands that some customers might have. There are two ways to it. Either there is a small collection that we produce every year around the certain theme of unique pieces only, which are then presented and that can be purchased uh, for clients. Or there is the real bespoke where a client comes and orders a specific watch, which can go from, you know, a specific, uh, a specific craftsmanship on the dial to really the development of a complete new movement. And the best example of that is the 57 to 60, which you probably heard about. Uh, today is still the most complicated mechanical watch, which was presented based on a client order in 2015. You know, it's a uh, 57 complications. Um, three. It's a big pocket watch, right? Yeah, that's the, the, and, and, the, and the briefing for that watch. You know, and so, and, and the, the, the funny thing is the briefings for, for those projects, they can be extremely specific um, to very broad. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the legends at Vacheron have it that um, the briefing for the 57-260 by, by, by the client was, I would like to have the most complicated watch ever made. And then you go on and you come up and see what, uh, what, uh, what comes out of that. I remember how brilliantly the brand used that opportunity and it's just sort of an interesting look at how luxury watch brands can market themselves these days. That pocket watch that you're talking about was a bespoke project. One was made for a client on order. And apparently part of your agreement with them is that that was a, a public project, that it wouldn't have to be private. Because a lot of things you make, as I understand, are not things that clients want you to disclose. And that one you know, was made public. And I remember being in Hong Kong one time and there was all these big billboards in the city, the Vacheron Constantin ads with this pocket watch on it. And I remember thinking, it's such an interesting thing that they're advertising something that you can't buy, <laughs> right? Like you can't just go to a store and be like, hey, that cool pocket watch, I want one. Oh, well, sorry. But it, it got you curious about the brand and it was showing off something that, you know, was, was so great. And that's, that's, that's the kind of flexing and strange approach to, to demand creation desire that, you know, this industry has always been kind of slick at, right? Yeah, but in the end, you know, the, the billboards at, the, at Watches and Wonders in Hong Kong in 2015, they were not there to sell the watch, but the, that watch was much more than, you know, just a bespoke project. It was like, a, a, if you want, like, a, like a, a living research project. Oh, no, the brand was super proud of it. You wanted everyone to know. No, but yes, but on top of that, you also have to see what came out of that because there was so much innovation that came, that, that went into the watch. Um, and then you have all these individual spin-offs. For example, the, the, the escapement. Yeah. Uh, so the watch was so complicated. Normally for a piece like this, you create a prototype. Uh, for a complication like this, you cannot create one prototype because a full prototype because it will take you eight years to build a prototype. <laughs> and so they, 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 they slice the elephant and uh, they put prototypes for certain complications. And one 
One of them was actually the escapement, where they had this uh, triple-axis uh, tourbillon with a cylindrical hairspring. Um, that was put into a, just to test the escapement in a simple watch. And because the tourbillon was so big, they, they had to put like a retrograde uh, hours and minutes next to it. Right. And, uh, and uh, one of the guys on the project actually wore it for like six months and went around a bit. And out of this came actually a new movement that today we use in, in, uh, in, in Cabinotier, only in Cabinotier, the Army Aerie Tourbillon which is a, a stunning piece, very technical, very modern, um, spectacular with this, uh, with this uh, today with the double axis tourbillon and the retrograde hours and minutes. So, so and, the, and many other things like on the perpetuals and we worked on the, the most complicated things you can do in astronomical complications. And five years later or four years later, we presented the, the Celestia, which was takes element from, from that piece and, and combines it in a new way for the most complicated astronomical watch ever made. So I'm curious, when, when these clients come, which scenario that I'm about to mention is, is easier to work with? A, someone who comes and says, I don't know what I want, but I have a whole lot of money impressed me. Or B, someone who says, I want this very specific thing. I will, I will, you know, I will pay for it, but I want nothing but this specific thing. I think it's, it's, it's hard to answer. I think from a, from, from a creativity perspective, I think it's more challenging, more challenging. Um, because you have to meet the client expectations, you have to wow somebody. Uh, if you don't have a very clear briefing, um, but you can use all your creativity. So you like you like being a little bit more open ended. I mean, I I don't do these. I don't I don't manage those projects. But unfortunately, or fortunately, because they are managed in Geneva in Switzerland. But um, from a from a from a product perspective, I think it's like an artist. You know, you might want to ask an artist what you like more. If the person says, "Okay, paint me like this," or when the, when the person comes and says, "Okay." Create me an artwork that, um, that that comes from your heart. I would think the the, the later one is probably the uh, the better field for expressing your creativity. So here in America, I imagine if there happens to be a client who learns about this program, you know, it's a discussion. They don't just put the money down. If they're an American client, that request probably goes through you, right? So you probably have to speak to these customers first and survey them a little bit to make sure they're serious because it's a big commitment. What, what are some of your you know, qualification questions to, to ask them about who they are and, and what they're thinking to make sure this is also a good idea for the brand? Yeah, so first of all, it's not, it's not me, but it's our, it's our, our team, our, our staff in the boutiques or the staff at our, at our partners because we offer that service also to, as I told you, know, they're, they're an, a boutique run by an external partner or even by a multi-brand POS, you know, should have access to, uh, to, to that service. Um, there are no prerequisites. We don't say a person has to be, has to have uh, that and that history, we wash around this and this and this. It's like for every other client of, um, of, of any regular Vacheron Constantin watch because we are on purpose and always have been a niche brand so we produce significantly less than, uh, than, than many of our peers. So we have the beauty of actually, or this unique opportunity to knowing all of our clients and most of our clients really independent. And we always try to find out what is the right watch for the right person. That can be for a, an overseas blue dial, for a, a patrimony perpetual, and, and for a cabinotier. The, the, I think the, the limitation today is more, you know, the capacity to accepting projects because uh, specifically those bespoke projects, you know, they can take a very long time. They're, they're, they're like as, as complex as a development of a new watch collection. Um, so the capacity, we have to make sure that, that, that we have the capacity to actually entertain them. And there's not that many. From a business perspective, I think people need to realize that this program is not probably a massive moneymaker. As 
uh, as complicated and as expensive as some of these projects are, still it's a lot of wheel spinning for sometimes one pro project. Um, and as we discussed, there are very few brands, very few brands out there that do something like this. I guess my question is, is can you explain why it's so important to the company to maintain all this? Obviously, the things that come out of it are fantastic and everyone loves it. But from a business perspective, what makes it so that Vacheron can do something that many other brands have just said, we can't do this anymore? I think you have, you, have, uh, you have a couple of elements of them. One is certainly also to show what the, what the Maison is able to do. And you've seen even this year at Watchers and Wonders, uh, the, the split second, the, the split second minute repeater um, that again was, uh, was based on the, on the, on the Cabinotier project, you know, that really wows people by showing what we're able to do. Um, the second part is, um, you know, also to give a unique service to clients. So we see like Vachon Constantin, we are one of not many, and that has various aspects. Um, and Cabinotier is one of these aspects of one of not many. So on purpose, we want to do things that others don't. And, and, and third, it's also about our competence. You learn from things like this. I told you before, the 5726 was like a research lab. Um, each Cabinotier project, to an extent, is, um, you know, helps us to, to push the boundaries, be it in, on technicity on the movement or on new ways of craftsmanship out of Cabinotier. We've developed a lot of new um, métiers d'art, artistic creations of craftsmanship, that were, which then later on we can use in some uh, still very limited but, uh, but uh, more available collections. While these projects go on, because as you said, some of them can literally take years, what kind Most of, of them do, actually. Yeah. What kind of things do you do to update the client along the way, right? Because it's not like they pay and then all of a sudden they get a call and be like, hey, that thing you ordered years ago is ready. You, you got to, you know, update them along the way. You send them pictures, greeting cards. Like, <laughs> like what do you do to, to, to maintain their attention and interest? It's really up to, the, to what the clients want and how okay. much they want to get involved. You know, it's it really like there's no like standard process because we do so few of them. So it's really like the process, how to follow the project is as personalized as the project by itself. If the client wants to come to, to Geneva, you know, and, and see the status, you know, he's welcome to do. Also depends on the complexity of the project, you know, for a, for a project like the, the 57 to 60, you know, there were regular meetings on updating the clients and, and to see whether it goes in the right way. So that's really like a, like a research project, you know. I think it's important to also explain the context that when you are an elite collector, and when I say elite means you're not only knowledgeable, but you have a huge amount of money to throw at your, at your habit of collecting watches, what many collectors tend to, to fall into is the desire for wanting watches that only they have. At first, you want expensive watches, then you want rare watches, and then after that, you want watches that are made exclusively for you. And so the types of people who have the confidence to actually go to a brand and be like, okay, not only do I want to put down a lot of money, but I have the confidence I'm going to want it. That's a very small number of people, but it does represent where like the, the top level of collector goes. So I think it's interesting and good that Vacheron knows where this journey of collecting you know, leads and is there at the end being like, when you want the absolute craziest thing, which is an actual complication made just for you, we're one of very few stable outfits that's willing to do it for you. And I think that, that most people do not understand how rare it is and that this is something that it's not money just can't buy this. Right. Like, yes, it's, it's a service, but you have to be willing to do it. And that's super special and something that, like you said, shows what Vacheron can do. But it takes so many years to recognize that Vacheron exists in its 
own little space that does this, that even amongst these top brands. You know, you can't go to like Breguet and do this really. Patek, maybe if you're super, super lucky, right? Audemars Piguet, I don't know. But Vacheron really has this department that will welcome me with, you know, relatively open arms when you want something that the others won't do. And that's that's cool, in my opinion. Yeah, and and the willingness is one thing, the willingness to go that extra mile, but also to have the competence of being able to do that. Um, Stable, and, yeah. And, 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 and then that brings me to the, to, the, to, to the other element where we say, I would say another unique, call it service or, 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 or you know, or, or opportunity for collectors is for me, uh, you probably have heard about this, Le Collectionneur. Have you heard about Le Collectionneur? Tell me about so, it. So Le Collectionneur, I think it's a, it's a unique offer, which is very much linked to Vacheron's, you know, dedication and preservance of our heritage. And then why is heritage so important? Because you always say, okay, yes, we are the oldest watch brand since 1755. It's great to be uh, 200, uh, more than 250 years old, but in the end, just for the sake of being old, you know, nobody cares, you know, then you're old fashioned in your museum. But the heritage for Vacheron is so important because we spoke about that before, you know, because heritage, this uninterrupted heritage allows us to really have this uh, understanding of watchmaking. And since the beginning, you know, to, to, you know, tradition innovation is like the same side of, uh, of uh, the two sides of the same coin. Tradition of today was the innovation of the past. That's why it stays tradition today. So the watch that I'm wearing today, the Conde Vache with that beautiful, you know, very traditional, you know, chronograph movement, which you know very well with the, the um, beautiful finish by Vacheron today, that, 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 that's a traditional chrono. In the, in the 50s or in the 40s when that movement was created, that was like top-notch innovation, you know? So that's why the reason why Vacheron is still here today, I believe, is because we always have been you know, able to reinvent ourselves with innovation um, to create the, if you want, the tradition of tomorrow by staying true to traditional watchmaking. That's why heritage is so important. Um, and, and now coming back to the to Le Collection, and that's why we have an own department within Vacheron Constantin, um, which does nothing else to maintain, manage our heritage in two ways. One, you have the restoration atelier, which I believe is one of the most fascinating places when you visit uh, the manufacture in Geneva because you have this atelier of 20 watchmakers from the age of uh, early 20s to the age of 60s and they are the real geeks, you know. They repair all the, the, the historical watches that are being sent back from, uh, from, from all around the world. You anything? We have the guarantee that we can make any Vachon Constantin work, watch work again. It might take some time. <laughs> it might, might cost some money. Um, but we, we guarantee that we can make all of them work again. We have almost complete record of archives. When you come to New York to our flagship, you can actually see uh, the archives completely digitalized. So you can access them. Cool. Um, so, 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 and, and these guys, they're like, uh, they're real, the real restaurant. And most brands won't do that. I want to say, you know, Rolex is a company that people don't realize because they do a lot of, you know, repairs and things like that. If a watch is 25 years or older, Rolex reserves the right to be like, we're not going to fix it. Most brands... Like you have to be a special buddy to have them fix an old watch. Like you know, they they won't do it at any price. That Vacheron does this again. I just want to create some you know context here. Uh, is is a special thing, and and it goes really like a, there. You really push the limits. You know that's beyond, like say a, any commercial logic. You know when when you visit them, you meet guys who work on the on the on the pocket watch from the mid eighteen hundreds, and. Uh, 
if you don't have the the if, if some in the movement some 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 wheels are te- wheels are missing and you don't have the complete plan because in the 1800s you know you didn't have you know computerized files of the movements you know they have to reproduce them in order to reproduce them they have to calculate the gears by hand how many teeth does it have and then produce them by hand so it's completely crazy yeah it takes the guy three weeks to calculate and, and by hand and, and do the these calculations but then they produce them by hand and they make it work again so that's that, that's a bit like of craziness, but on the other hand, it also helps you because watch restorators, they have, they understand what the, the, like the traditional ways of watchmaking, they are completely, you have to have a certain madness about that to get that much into depth. And so many young people actually, you're able to recruit them, but then many of them also become like innovators who then move into the complications department. That's the one part. And the second part about heritage uh, is also, is Le Collectionneur. Uh, and Le Collectionneur is a unique concept where the heritage department buys specific watches on the open market mm-hmm. based on aesthetical, technical, historical significance. Normally between, you know, between the, the mid-1910s to the, the 1960s. Um, we buy them back. We completely restore them, refurbish them. They come with a certificate of origin, a warranty of two years, like a new watch. And a very small collection of those pieces is actually offered for clients to buy. You never have them... Except for the New York flagship, these pieces are never in stock. New York, being the global flagship, always has like three or four pieces of stock, but they normally go on traveling exhibitions all around the world. And again, they are like a, a unique option and a very unique offer today in the market, you know, to buy an original vintage piece, certified, restorated, with no worries, because when you buy vintage watches, okay, maybe you can find something at a lower price somewhere else, but you're not sure of the quality, you're not sure whether it has been tampered with, you don't have all the complete certification. So really a very, very unique offer for watch lovers as well. Um, I want to talk about this last thing you said about how, you know, Vacheron will do everything from take in an old vintage, you know, timepiece and fix it to actually having some restored ones that you can buy in addition to the new pieces. And it makes me think about the fact that it's a trend among some brands, not all, to create official services where they will have a service where they restore their own watches or they will buy back. Um, just in general, what are your feelings about this, this addition to the business model for, for some or more watch brands, where now it's not just the new watches, but they're, they're including services include old watches? I think uh, you know, having, having a great service is as important than making a beautiful watch. You know? um, that's why we have in, in, in many of our boutiques, um, we have a watchmaker on site. Uh, which on one hand helps you to, you know, it's very much ingrained into our maison, but it helps you, of course, also to service in the boutique to be, to have a faster response time. So not having to send everything back to a service center in Geneva because, you know, a Vacheron watch, even a simple freehand watch is not a, you know, it's not a, it's not the watch that everybody can, can fix. You know, you cannot get a, to a watchmaker around the corner and, and ask him to fix it. So you need some training. You need some, you, you cannot just come out of watchmaking school and, and, and fix a, a Vacheron or hour minute second. So to provide a better service to our clients, to have shorter shorter lead times, but also you know to help educate them about what the beauty of, uh, of watchmaking is all about. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. 
We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. I guess the reason I'm thinking about it is, you know, the pandemic did something very interesting, which was restrict a lot of production, and that created a lot of, you know, very real scarcity in the market, and consumers responded in a way that I think was very beneficial to the industry, which was with huge amounts of demand. And so now moving forward, I think that it would be wise for a lot of companies as they ramp up productions again to, to consider um, you know, not making too many. And, and in order to continue to grow, rather than make new watches, they could add on these services, you know, sell older people, pieces and things like that. I'm just you know, brainstorming some of the interesting techniques that brands can use as they continue to remain profitable and grow while not necessarily producing a higher volume of watches. You know what I mean? Sure. And that's very true for Vachon because, you know, we have never been a volume brand. We didn't want to be a volume brand. Our volume stay more or less constant because it also means that we can, you know, keep the production, the way of producing and creating watches the way we want. Because if you want to, we would have to increase quantity significantly. You know, you would have to change certain processes, industrialize much more. So, yeah, I agree. But, but, but apart from being purely a business, I think service today is really an extremely important part for a client relationship. Where does a brand like Vacheron learn, right? Do you look at other industries? Do you just sort of, you know, look at other brands? How do you learn as a company how to be better at that service and relationship side that you keep talking about? Good question. You know, we have this uh, motto of Vacheron, which is um, do better if possible. And that's, um, that's always possible. <laughs> that was created actually in, in, the, in the early 1800s by Francois Constantin, who was the you know, in watchmaking, in, in many of the watchmaking companies, there's always the, that uh, this combination between the genius technician and the watchmaker, and then the commercial guy who, who helps to bring the, the, the genius of the watchmaker to a global stage. And um, Francois Constantin was actually the, 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 commercial, the commercial driver, the entrepreneur behind it. And at that time, point in time, I think you already had in mind that, uh, you know, providing a good service to clients in the end is what, uh, what makes it win. So I think we always strive to do things better. You, I think you, can, you can't, in a mechanical watch, it's not, it's not a computer and it's not a, it's not a, probably if you have something that's mass produced in the millions and it has less, um, less manual technology in it, it has a less, uh, you know, a lower chance of actually failing. A mechanical watch can always have a problem, but then the important part is how do you react to that and how you fix it. And, uh, and I think the most of what, most of what we learn is actually from clients, you know, and together with clients, what we can do. I, it's, I'm glad that you brought up uh, Mr. Constantin. Um, I actually wanted you to explain sort of the origin story a little bit because people today, they see Vacheron Constantin, they might think that's one person, not realize it's two. Same thing with like Patek Philippe, those are two different people. You know, give a little bit of context, you know, who started this brand, uh, why you said one of them was more of a commercial person, the other one was a technical person, that's a common combination. And what was it special about Vacheron Constantin that allowed it to continuously operate, as you said. Many brands went into hibernations for many, many years and came back. Help people understand, you know, some of the interesting background about this, about this company. Not, not, not wanting to repeat myself, but again, it was really this couple of, um, 
the technical genius, Jean-Marc Vachon, who was a watchmaker at that time, really, who started in 1755. You know, there was very, very early on in the development of the watchmaking industry that, uh, that we know today. Super you know? early. So, and you know how that, how that uh, in, in, in a nutshell, the story of watchmaking came, came to Switzerland. It was yeah. not, you know, the Swiss were not the leading watchmakers in, uh, in, in, in ever, ever in history. There were some other, like the British, who were actually much more at the forefront in the 15 and 1600s because they needed something to navigate their ships. And then you had the Huguenots in France. Um, and then the French kicked the, the, with all these, these, um, these uh, religious wars between Protestantism and Catholicism in the end. The Huguenots had to leave France and they came to Geneva. And, and that's when this watchmaking started in Geneva first because this, Geneva at the time didn't have watchmaking. It was the city of jewelers. Yeah. And then when, you, when, when Calvin brought this, um, so I simplify the story, but brought, uh, introduced this Calvinism, this very Puritan you know, philosophy, you know, Jewelry was something vain, and you're not supposed to make uh, to make vain things. So the jewelers were looking something what they could do with the gold. So in the end, came up to something functional. And watchmaking was sort of like the link, and in parallel to that, the Huguenots, the Huguenots came. We were very skilled in crafts, and then watchmaking started. And, and it was really in Geneva where it started. And that was the time when when Jean-Marc Bachelon set up his his workshop. And and the reason why the cabinotier, what we spoke about before is called cabinotier, is because at that time the watchmakers in Geneva were called cabinotier because they worked in these cabinets, normally on the, on the, under the roof of, of houses with, the, with big windows where the light came in. Right. Um, and, um, and, and, and we always have this, so we celebrate the birthday of Vachon Constantin on the 17th September every year. And there was not, that, I think that's a very important part. And uh, it was not because that's when Jean-Marc Vacheron founded his company or when he produced his first watch or whatever, it was the day when he actually signed his first apprentice. Oh. So we still have the document of uh, Jean-Marc Vachon uh, um, uh, signing his, his first apprentice. And that's for us the, the, the birthday of Vachon Constantin, which is, a, again, a very important part because it's this passing over the, the, the competence and, the, and, and developing further. It's a bit like tradition innovation. Um, bringing new people in, passing on, you know, and, and that, you ask me, why is Vachon Constantin still here? I think that's one of the important parts in it, you know, because if you stand still and, um, and only do what you've done in the past and don't further develop, um, you know, you stop. And, and there was a lot of innovation in the history of Vachon Constantin. There's a lot of innovation in Vachon today. Uh, for example, the, the, the Maltese cross, you know, it's not a religious symbol. It has nothing to do with the cross. It, has, it, is, it, it was a very innovative component in the late 1800s, you know, that you used to actually screw components in the watch movement. Yeah. And it had that form of a Maltese cross, and that's why it was actually uh, called uh, the Maltese cross. But why did Vacheron adopt that as a logo? Because that was a huge innovation at the time. <laughs> yeah. So it was a screw head, basically. It was a, it was a screw head, yeah, which yeah. was a big innovation in time because it allowed you to make it, you know, the, the more torque, smaller yeah. pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and so this is again this this uh, this um, balance between history in, uh, and innovation always has driven Bacheron. And the other thing um, is really this 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 link between yes, technicity, but also beauty. Uh, and and when you say. So Geneva was always like, a, you know, the, the very precise, coming a bit, uh, going a bit back to, to Calvin, straight lines, very understated and so on. So Vachon has that. And, and also on the movement, you look at our movement, it's, uh, they're very, very, very understated, very puristic. But then on the aesthetics, there is this, um, you know, this a bit, you call it a bit like flamboyance and being different and, um, and, and maybe a bit quirky. 
that was always there at Vashon Constantin. And I think that 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 allowed the, the brand to stand apart and to be and to be different. And the third part is probably that we stick always very close to what we wanted to do. And that be not not a watch for everybody. Um, so really never a mass producer. Um, and, and stay true to your roots. Thank you for that. That that that's um uh, that's a good history. I mean, again, I want to point out the fact that being in Geneva helps. You know, the city hasn't had too many interruptions from economic crises or wars. It's been relatively well insulated, so you could have a company that operated that long. What about after the quartz crisis? Right now, Vacheron is part of the Richemont Group, but I'm just curious, sort of the sort of latter day history. What was going on at the company from, you know, I guess you could say the late 60s and 70s to, I presume, in the 90s, maybe, when it was acquired? I mean, talk about that time. Yeah, so I would say, so the, the interesting thing is when everybody threw away, and you, you know these very, very famous stories that went in the, in the, in the, in the, mid-19, the mid-1970s, many of the Swiss watch brands, they were like, uh, like, Burning the, the plans of the mechanical movements, you know, these very Tragic famous stories, how people actually keep it and, and, and throwing machines into lakes, like old, old <laughs> presses in, in, into lakes in order to get rid of them because nobody wanted them. Huge um, machines. And, 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 and they're really like switching everything to quartz. You know, in that time, 1977, you know, Vachon Constantin launched the triple two. Yeah. Yeah. Ultra slim, automatic, elegant, elegant, sporty, beautiful watch that, uh, that, uh, that time was Innovation, it broke the boundary. It was a huge watch, a jumbo at 37 millimeters. So today you're just like a it's like a small watch. But really breaking boundaries and staying true what you are where you are. Um, and of course, you know, at that time, you know, even James Bond were, were a big digital watch before. That was the cool thing to have. Yeah. But Russia will stay stay true what the, what they are. And in the end, in the in the in the in the eighties, if you want to say, I think they were they were saved by by one of the passionate collectors who bought them. Um, for who, who, who took over the, the company at that time, I, th- I still think from the from from descendants of the founding family, and uh, out of his passion for the brand, kept it, uh, kept nurturing it, kept uh, kept pushing it. You had a, a, a very a very a very niche market, kept it uh, kept it further innovating it until it ended up, uh, you know, in let's say in the in Richemont and then and then continued. No, that, that's interesting. Um, that's all a story of passion on on all on all elements on the brand, but also you know. If you want, like, uh, like collectors jumping in when the, when, the, when the brand is in trouble. No, it's a good thing. I mean, if, if you have a fan that buys you when there's hard times, I mean, that's a good sign, right? Most companies wouldn't be that fortunate. Um, and, that's, and that's an uncommon story because, as you said, during that time, many brands folded. And over the last 20 years, what we saw is many instances of brands being revived, right? But it's, it's got nothing to do with the past. Vacheron, as you said, continue to be sort of more or less the same entity for the vast majority of this, you know, this history, which is, which is incredible. Now, fast forward to today, um, in, in America, um, Vacheron is among a small group of elite watchmakers sort of at this level. Talk about some of the people who today are interested. Who's most receptive to these values, to this history? Again, people attract uh, you know, different personalities, so people have different brands they like, and there's different tastes. This is great. But who are you seeing today are some of the demographics who are very drawn to this history and these values and, and the particular aesthetic at Vacheron Constantin? We always tend to think about our, um, our clients or the people who are, who are passionate about the, you know, the, 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 real, the real connoisseurs. There's not, there's not like one, 
profile, I can tell you. You know, I want age range, which is our focus. But I think it's really for people who are passionate about things that maybe others don't see or don't 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 have the you know the patience to care about. Um, who want something that maybe not everybody has to know, but the, the right people know, and who want maybe something that you know that's um, that's a little bit you know has a twist and is a little bit um, you know off the off the classic path. So you, in luxury, you always have like the two elements, you know, the one is um, the thing that you, you get for yourself because you're passionate about it, and the other one to the outside because you, you, you want to show to the outside that you can make it, that you can afford it. And so and you always have these two elements. I think for uh, the, the Bashan clients that I know, and I know quite a, quite a few of them because I said we have the, the chance to meet, to meet most of them in person, the inner, the passion part is, uh, is always the more important. And, and that passion, you know, that, uh, that, that keeps growing. So this year at Watches and Wonders 2022, Vacheron Constantin was, of course, there. And you were, you know, one of the hits of the shows. And there's three watches here on the table in front of us. Sorry for everyone who's listening. You can't see them, but we uh, will, of course, feature them all on a blog to watch. You can cover them. And one here is a, a ladies' Perpetual calendar. This is in the traditional collection, I yes. imagine. We have um, a, a mother of pearl dial, uh, a diamond decorated bezel and lugs, um, and a beautiful perpetual calendar moon face display. Uh, relatively thin automatic movement. Um, you know, if you are someone looking for a watch lover's watch uh, and you are a female, this is an ideal choice. Um, We'll talk about that one in a second here. And then we also have a gold, a solid, uh, is that yellow gold? I guess that's rose gold. Um, uh, Overseas on a bracelet, uh, ultra slim, perpetual calendar, skeletonized, um, a a masterful creation that very few brands can can accomplish. Most people don't understand the difference between an ultra thin perpetual calendar and a thick one is very, very different. Um, so this is a lovely one that I think is a feature today. And then, of course, um, something a little bit more for the, the, the ultra-high-end connoisseur, a titanium overseas skeletonized tourbillon. Um, very lightweight, uh, really sporty feeling, but elegant looking, very classic. Um, this is an incredible timepiece because you have a combination of so many great things today. You have the, 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 the leisure wearing of the overseas. Uh, it's a little bit flashy, which I think is great. This sort of lightweight uh, of the titanium. And then you have this dial, which mind you has full hour markers with loom, right? So you could see the time on this watch easily, but then through the sapphire dial, you see the skeletonized movement, the exposed uh, tourbillon there, highly polished bridges, you know, just a, a fantastic, yet masculine, yet very masculine um, design. Um, with, of course, an automatic movement there, quite thin with a peripheral automatic motor. Uh, rotor. Uh, again, what is, what is the retail on, uh, on a tourbillon like this, Alex? Uh, I don't have the exact price in mind, quote on that, but that one is around 100, uh, 150,000. Okay, okay. So that, that's, that's nowhere near the top of where the brand is, but if you're, if you're looking for a, a, a tourbillon that's about 150,000, um, this needs to be on a relatively small list, right, of, of choices. This is, this is a great timepiece here. So I actually want to go back to the ladies' watch here. Um, I'm fascinated by the market of the, the female connoisseur of mechanical watches, right? Talk about how this consumer relates to the overall strategy right now. Is this sort of a one-off thing, or 
is is Vacheron going to be someone that a female interested in complicated watches can go to? Yeah, and abs- we always have been. You know, so when 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 you look at the the history of the of the of Vacheron Constantin, we always have been making beautiful ladies' watches. Um, actually, our, the first wristwatch, and again, ladies were probably a leading men. The first wristwatch, you know, the, the first wristwatches for men came after the 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 the, 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 the ditches of the world came out of the ditches of World War One. Yeah. Vacheron um, Constantin made the first wristwatch for ladies in 1883. Beautiful piece because at that time, you know, with a with a small movement, um, yeah. you know, it has to be elegant, had to be worn on on the slim wrist. So we always made watches for ladies. And of course, that's a, that's an integral part of, of our offer. And what we see today is that you have more and more, you know, as you have with men, you know, more and more passion actually of looking into the movement and not just buying a watch for the looks. Um, you you have this coming up for ladies, and you have a, um, these great ladies collectors groups um, who are as passionate as the as the uh, as, as the men, maybe having a slightly different angle to it. Um, and, and and of course, we want that they, they can find watches that um, that they love at Vacheron. And that's exactly the idea behind that uh, that perpetual, which, if you want, is the first really grand complication or, or high complication that Vacheron did uh, does for it. But again, then you they, it's always it's always hard to say what's a lady's watch because what's a lady's watch for me? A lady's watch is a watch that a, a lady likes. Yeah, uh, and that can be a, a forty-five millimeter steel chronograph or a 28 millimeter jewelry watch or a perpetual calendar, you know, so it depends. You cannot, you cannot say, okay, so that, that's a lady's watch. For example, the American 21, um, the small and the large version, we have many women who love to, who love to wear that watch. We have also very, very, uh, very many men who like to wear that watch. You know? So, but this piece specifically, I would say, is a very feminine interpretation. Um, I don't, you, you never know, but I don't, I, I, I see rather a woman wearing that than, than, than a man on this piece. Statistically yeah. more likely yeah. to be a female. Um, and, 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 and it's great, it's, it's not just a, you know, a male watch made smaller, but really designed specifically, you know, from its design, from the, from the case design, it's ultra slim, so it wears beautifully on the wrist, the case design of Traditionnel, the blue mother of pearl. Um, really this classic, ultra-slim, elegant, perpetual, with a beautiful... And you could make a more masculine version of this, right? This one is designed for that, but you could take the same movement and, you know, render a small, you know, there's a market for that. And and by the way, I think it would look great in 38 millimeter in a simple classic dial for male. It could be... It would, it would. It's the the perfect size for for both, for... um, Really what, what is it about the culture at the brand that makes it so that you get these sort of dress watches so right? Is it maybe because you've just done it so many times? Because for me, the, the traditional especially does certain things on a men's dress watch dial that other brands try and fail to copy. For example, taking these Delphine hands, splitting down in the middle with two finishes. I'm not saying you're the only ones that do this, but persistently you do it the best especially in combination with the hour markers and things like that. Um, how do you get away with these just fantastic dials? I think it really boils down to, um, to the heritage and having, having done. It's like, it's like a thing that you, that you can't buy, you know. You either, like, you have this is ingrained in your company, passed from one to the other. And, and in watchmaking, you know, really the difference is like uh, not one millimeter, but it makes really one-tenth of a millimeter. The other thing I always... Well, uh, I think uh, which is really a strength of Vacheron Constantin, and it's sometimes a very, a very overlooked part of the watch is the cases. 
Everybody speaks to, uh, always about the movement, about the, about the, the face, the dial. Very few people actually highlight cases, but they, a, a case can actually really make or kill a watch. Of course. So, so when you look at it speci specifically traditional, you know, the way how the traditional case is built, it's not show-offy, but when you look at all the different elements, you know, the, the glass comes out a little step. Then you have the, the, the bezel, which has a slight angle. You have a small step under the bezel coming out with a very, very tiny line around it. Then you have the, 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 the horns with this short angle, a facet underneath, the big part of the case, again with the recess coming out, a line at the bottom, another line at the bottom, and then a slight angle at the, at the, at the bottom of the case. That's really an art you yeah. know, to make a case like this. It's not just a it's not just a barrel with you know sticks sticking out. And, of it. and and you know it's not in your face, but in the end, that's a bit the the, the topic that uh, that we're talking actually here today of our annual theme, this which is anatomy of beauty. You know, you see something as a whole, and and you perceive it as beautiful. Then okay, subjectively, beauty there is uh, it's very subjective. But you have some some some. I think the objective criteria is in beauty is that. The beauty as a whole depends, comes from the, 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 the sum of all that small details that, uh, that actually make the beauty. And I think that's a, that's a great example. All these little elements that you don't perceive in detail, when you look at it in detail, you see them, um, but you see it coming together, you perceive it as a beautiful, sophisticated piece. Would you say that compared to other brands that made high complication watches at Vacheron, a larger percentage of the overall production goes to complicated watches versus just three hands? I can't speak about other brands, of course, but uh, you can say that for Vacheron, we always, we always try to keep... Vacheron always has been a generalist brand, um, meaning it's generalist meaning in styles, yeah. being able to do ladies' watches, um, jewelry watches, classic watches, um, sporty, elegant watches, simple watches, and complications. So we always try to keep the balance mm -hmm. um, between, you know, simple freehand, mid mid complications to really high to really grand complications. And and you can see it in the collection. And I think what's also interesting is how much there is to discover. One of the more popular uh, watches that came out of Watches and Wonders this year is one that I didn't mention, which was the, the reissue of the, the 222, as it's known, uh, which originally came out in the early 1980s, I believe. Uh, no, in 1977. That's what we talked oh, about. In the, in the middle of the quartz crisis. Oh, that's right. 77. For the 222nd anniversary of Vachon Constantin. And this was, you know, at the era, it was trendy to have these thin, we'll call them sport watches, on bracelets, um, you know, Patek Philippe had their Nautilus, Audemars Piguet had the Royal Oak, and for, uh, for Vacheron, it was the overseas eventually, but this 222 was a very special model. And I knew about it a long time ago, and I've always been a fan. I like uh, uh, George Heisek, who, who was the designer. Um, <clears throat> he went on to doing incredibly crazy things. But it was sort of like many people discovered that watch for the very first time. Like they got so excited about it. And it's like, I was like, yeah, it's a reissue. And they're like, oh, this is a great new creation. What did you feel? You know, I'm sure you recognize most of these people had no idea about this, this historic model. What were some of the emotions that you had when you saw people learning about this design for the very first time? Well, I wouldn't say nobody, nobody you know, knew, knew about that. about. People. Well, I mean, again, it's like Vacheron Constantin. Not, not, not everybody has to know about it, but the people, the, the, the collectors and people passionate about that, the 222 has become 
really an extremely sought they wanted to 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 so yeah. become an extremely sought after piece over the last um, you know over the last um, the last five uh, five to ten years. Then you have to keep in mind again, Vacheron has never been a, a mass producer. So of the two to two, the original two to two, only very very few pieces have been produced. I think of the, of the steel version, it's like 150 pieces. Of the gold version, uh, even less. And then of the of the bicolor one, uh, even less. You can almost count them on one hand. So it was on purpose something that you know that uh, that that was never meant to be to be brought and distributed because also you know that movement that ultra slim. You know that uh, ultra slim automatic, which which today is the basis of which we're still using today, the basis for the for the ultra slim perpetual. You know, simply, you can't produce it in large quantities. So, I think in 2022, before that watch came out, before I even knew that that watch came out, there were already collectors coming up and saying, "Okay, wouldn't that be a, a when are you going to when are you going to launch the the two to two? It's like it was sort of like expected." Um, and, and the reception was like this. And again, it's not um, you know I don't not everybody needs to know the two two two. Right. You know, the right people need to know it. And and um, you know even the model that we relaunched now will be produced in as limited quantities as the original. But important to say, it's not a limited edition. It's not limited, but it's naturally limited. But it's not numbered. Well, I think there's a distinction there because I believe that the volume of limited editions that have been thrown on the market and Vacheron is not one of the offenders. Has actually created some problems because people don't buy the watches because they want it. They rush to buy something and then they realize they don't want it and they throw it on the market and that screws things up. It's better, like you do, to not make too many of them but not say we're going to stop so yeah. that you basically have people in line to get it that want it. Yes. And I just want to make that distinction because I think there's very new, small nuances to differences in these business practices that make it a big difference. And I think what you've done is basically done it the, the, the way that has high dignity, which is we want to bring it back for people that want it and couldn't get the original, but we're not, we're not doing a hype thing. So for, for us, the, the, the limitations is really, on all our pieces, a natural limitation. Um, so simple the fact that we cannot produce more of them. Um, the 222 will be a piece that will continue in production. That's why it's not, it's not numbered. We might we do some 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 really numbered limited editions from time to time where you know the the natural limitation of production is even more extreme. Like for example the the, um, the tribute to great civilizations that we had uh, that we had we just lost from the Louvre. So that they are limited to five five pieces each because we simply cannot produce more than that. You know, but uh, but yes, that's exactly the the, the idea of not um, of of showing natural limitation, but uh, but not artificially you know limiting in our top. I want to end on, on one quick topic here that is one of the things that has excited me most about the brand, especially as a watch enthusiast, and that has been your uh, Metier d'Art watches. Mm. This is, for people who aren't familiar, and I actually don't know if you still do, but every single year you would create a, a limited edition of watches uh, really based around the execution of various traditional artistic techniques. You'd like to combine versus techniques like we're doing engraving and enamel and and various stuff like this. These watches are always stunning and beautiful and interesting. What is what has lately come out of that? I don't actually know. I haven't seen it. And, and talk about um, you know where do some of those ideas come from? Who ends up getting those watches? Where are they even found? Um, explain to people what's uh, what's special about the Metier d'Art watches from Vacheron Constantin. So. Actually, it, it closes uh, perfectly what I just mentioned before. You know, the um, the collaboration we just had with, with the Louvre. 
They met you there when I spoke about when you come and visit the, the manufacturing in Geneva, there is for me the two highlights or the two unique areas where you go to. One is the restoration atelier. We talked about that before. The other one is the, the atelier for the metier d'art, where you have this one room where you have uh, this craftsman of, uh, and, and washmaking at Vachon always had the two elements. You know, it has the technical part, innovation, technical, and always the aesthetical part. And the artistic metiers of watchmaking are a very important part of it. And today we can say we are one of the very few maisons who has all the four artistic metiers, enameling, engraving, guillotage, and gem setting which on a watch is very different than a piece of jewelry, in-house. So we still work from time to time with some experts outside, but we have all the competence actually in-house to, uh, to, um, to, to manage these, uh, these competences. And those, those guys are real artists. Uh, so the, the, the person who does, for example, the engraving, which is not like engraving, but more like sculpturing, he comes from, a, from a, he was a, he, he, he is a, he's French, a very, a very, very nice down to earth guy. And he was like a, a specialized artist to, uh, to craft, um, you know, um, guns. So, so the, 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 the holders of, of, uh, for, for guns, which is like a, a, an artistic craft. And he said he wanted to reduce that and make it small. And that's how he came into watchmaking. Since then he's at, at, at Vachon, the guy who's, who's, uh, who's doing the guillotage. He's, uh, he's originally from Thailand. He's been in Switzerland since uh, I think since uh, since more than 40 years, um, and he's like the master of this um, of these uh, of these machines that he's using, who are hundred or, or over hundred years old. Which today, the company who produced those machines is gone since long. <laughs> so he's he's keeping them and and, and 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 maintaining them, and they're like manual computers to create these patterns of uh, of guillotage. And then those guys sit together in one atelier, um, working on their on letting their creativity spin, and sometimes they. They bring out new métiers d'art of simply by the fact that they're working together. For example, the, the, um, a very special uh, enameling technique that Vasha was using, which you call the, in the grisaille enamel, which is a mixture between engraving and enameling on top, which gives it a completely different look because the two guys came up with that. So métiers d'art is, is, is a very important part for Vacheron to also maintain this and further develop it. And the field of expressions on one hand is en cabinotier. That has a, a lot of métiers d'art. And then... We each year, as you mentioned, we launch regular collections of Métier d'Art, and the, the, the latest launch was actually just the end of May this year, um, the cooperation with the Louvre, where we uh, brought these uh, tribute to great civilizations, four watches, a great homage to the, the, the four great historic human civilizations, curated together with the Louvre, where artworks from the Louvre, actual artworks from the Louvre, which are representative for for, for one civilization, old Egypt, uh, old, old Babylon, uh, old, uh, Greek, Greece and, and Rome, you know, are interpreted by the craftsmen on the minuscule surface of a Vashon Constantin That's the latest interpretation of uh, the Métier d'Art. Awesome. And I recommend that everyone go to the Vacheron Constantin website to see all the watches that we've been talking about and to get to know the brand. This has been a wonderful conversation with Mr. Alexander Schmidt, the president of the Americas at Vacheron Constantin. Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com.